you're listening to the five games of a special series of the games industry.biz podcast every month i'm joined by a special guest to discuss their career over the course of five games their first their latest and three of their choice the conversation not only covers the games themselves but also the ways that those games demonstrate how the games industry has changed over the years so far we've mostly spoken to developers although last time we spoke to composer jesper kidd uh, and apologies to jesper i'm pretty sure that's now pronounced jesper and i got that wrong all the way through the episode <laughs> hoping i won't get it wrong with uh, our current guest this month we are talking uh, development again with industry legend Brenda Romero. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, James. Always a pleasure. Um, we're going to delve very deeply into your into your career, but kind of a little bit about yourself, a little little intro, little intro to your background before we before we dive in. Uh, sure. So I I got started. I guess you'd say I'm I'm, I'm a lifer in the game industry. Um, I got started when I was a kid. Uh, even I guess even before getting into the industry, I I got started making board games of whatever random pieces and parts I could find in the backs of um, boards that I, that I got at uh, garage sales or, or boot sales or flea markets or whatever you want to call them. And then I got into the industry proper when I was 15 at Surtex Software and really have never left. Marvellous. And uh, yeah, the, the, the sheer scope of the five games that we've got to talk about you have you cover a lot of the industry and a lot so we we're probably going to cover more ground in this episode of five games of than we have in any previous one so we're going to dive straight into it with your first game Wizardry, Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord, was released in 1981 for Apple II, later ported to PC, Mac, FM7, PC98, PC88, Sharp X1, Commodore 64, MSX2, NES, TurboGrafx CD, SNES, Game Boy Color, and WonderSwan Color, and that is the first time I have regretted listing every single format. Um, <laughs> developed and published by Surtech. Um, how did a 15-year-old Brenda come to work on this game? Well, at the, so at the time... Um... At the time, it's, it is the classic right place, right time, um, and very unlikely. So I grew up in northern New York, which is uh, a beautiful place, but but, in, but very rural and, and for the most part, a, a farming community. So I uh, there were two things that, that if we just take a look at my you know, 13, 14-year-old self, you know, I've already mentioned that I was really into games, and I loved making games. My mother had picked up, it had to be at um, had to be at a flea market or something. She had picked up a copy of the first edition of Dungeons and Dragons. So for me, this was like, um, this was just like, it, it provided a rule set for my imagination. Like I could go anywhere I wanted to go. I could make anything I wanted to make. You know, so I, I, it's impossible to overstate the effect that, this, that, you know, for me, this was like the invention of electricity. Um, uh, and so then, well, okay, maybe not that dramatic, but it was, but it was really, really just transformational for me and for my imagination. And then somewhere she'd also picked up a, um, a VIC-20 computer. So, so I, I started tinkering around with that. So just that's sort of happening in the background of my life when the following conversation occurs in the bathroom of Ogdensburg Free Academy. And this is my whole interview, by the way. So Linda... Uh, now, Linda Curry is her, her name now, but um, then Linda Sertz, she walks in and she says to me, um, 
She says, do you, she, oh, actually she's looking for a cigarette. We, so it's Northern New York. It's under snow. You know, it feels like 11 months of the year. And I wouldn't advocate smoking to get into the game industry or for any reason for that, for that matter. Anyway, she's walking in and she's looking for a cigarette. Um, I, I offer her one. Uh, and to be polite, I guess she strikes the conversation, which goes as follows. She, she asked if I have a job and, and I didn't. Um, had I ever heard of Surtec? I hadn't. Had I ever heard of Wizardry? Also hadn't heard of wizardry. And I mean, bear in mind, it's like super fledgling at this point in time, right? And then the next question was, had I ever played D&D? And, and I had, like I was a DM at that point in time. So she said, well, come to our house on, I want to say it was August, 6th, uh, no, October 6th. So come to our house on October 6th. And so I did. And that was when I saw, that's when I saw something that, I have to believe it's like what someone sees when they first see VR because there's this wizard and he casts this spell out of his hand and it's color and it and it's animating and up to that point in time I mean like I'd seen computer screens right but they were you know they they were they were one color like they were green or amber or white they didn't or blue in the case I think of the VIC-20 but they didn't have this I hadn't seen anything that looked like this and I was just mind blown so I I got the job and then my job was to, um, there were no FAQs. There was no, you know, real concept of an internet that just anybody could access at that point in time. So my job was literally to play the games, memorize them. Um, and when people called wanting to know how to get to the 10th level, I would answer that question. So I, I, you know, and I, one of the things that I really was super proud of, it was like, you know, (laughs) the term epic gamer moment, you know, like I, I was the first person in the world to finish most of those versions, most of the most of the versions of Wizardry, just to make sure, like, can this be played? Can you get all the way through this? Is you know, is there any bugs? Is there anything weird going on? And I loved it. I loved the thought of being the first person in the world to finish the game. But um, yeah, that so that was my that's how I got into it. Just right place, right time. Uh, incredible luck. Just incredible luck. Nice. Well, you went on to work on on much of the rest of the series. So, how did you go from from being the person that answered, you know, that was essentially the guide section to actually developing them and and writing for them? Uh, I guess perseverance, love, passion. I um, the Wizardry series will always hold a a a you know an outsized place um, in my heart. I I stayed with Surtec just because I loved what I was doing. Um, at some point in time, if there would be an opening, like let's just say, you know, the guy who who wrote the manuals for the game, he's leaving. Well, I could do that, you know. And then, um, and then you know, we move up further in the series. Um, uh, you know, somebody needs to manage just sort of the the development process of this and the different, you know, making sure the different builds get out to the people who are testing them and. Um, uh, and well, I could do that. Uh, somebody needs to write the hint book. Well, I could do that too. So if there was, a, uh, you know, the, the, if there was a job and I could do it, I would try to do it. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's true of a lot of the early game industry, because in some cases, you know, when we think about the term game designer or even programmer, right? Like the, who programmed the game, who made the game, um, you know, often that was like a, you know, a one person show in, you know, particularly in the case of people like, you know, either uh, my husband, John, or, or somebody like Nasser Jabelli or Bill Budge, you know, these were, uh, you know, it was often just one person creating the whole thing. And so if there was something that I could do up to and including putting, putting the games in boxes, I would do it. Um, 
I guess I, I you know, one of the things that, uh, and, and I also, you know, so Robert Woodhead, Robert Woodhead is gone by Wizardry 4, David Bradley comes in at Wizardry 5, and then Bradley's there through 6 and 7, and then, you know, at that point in time, um, Wizardry, you know, we start working on Wizardry 8, but that's being developed uh, uh, at, at us uh, in Canada at a development office up there. Um, yeah, so I, it's just, I was just in love with the series. Uh, I, and I, there was a moment, I remember uh, a fateful moment when I, I was just like, you know, many people at that point in time, I was going to college, I was going to be going to get a real job. I had no sense that the game industry was really, in fact, a big industry. So we're talking, you know, this is in 84, 85, um, you know, think about where I, where I am. I'm in Northern New York. Um, there's, there's no access to internet. What I see is only what's shown to me. Um, there's not even any place to buy like, you know, hobbyist magazines about computers or computer games. So I went to college. Um, and while I was in college, I remember when I graduated, I interviewed with several companies, one of which was IBM in Atlanta. And I remember vividly, I remember so vividly, I remember what I was wearing. I remember what it looked like out, out, out the window. I remember what it looked like in the office. Um, uh, and I came around this corner and, and, the, and the woman who was taking me around, you know, before the interviews or after the interviews said, um, so what you'd be doing is revising DOS manuals. And it was like, it was that moment when the, um, the, the needle scratches across the record. It's like, I don't want to do that. It's like, I want to make games. Like, why would I, why would I leave something that I, that I inherently love that I find so creative and incredible to, to do this? And I mean, there's a, there was a good answer to it. Like I had another offer that was more than double what Surtech was paying me. Um, but I just wanted to keep making games. So I went back and, and when I was asked um, uh, by Rob Saratech, um, and how to go because they you know they knew I was going out to do these interviews and and I said I th- I think I just want to keep making games and that was it you know that was it for twenty years. Nice. Well, you mentioned how different things were in nineteen eighty four. Let's look at nineteen eighty one specifically. So when you started, what was the biggest differences in the games industry in general? And I kind of I guess they kind of overlap with nineteen eighty four. But compared to today, like what's the the biggest thing that was? <laughs> and I know that's a, a big question, but like what's the biggest difference? you know, today compared to 1981, whether it's development, whether it's like makeup of the industry, like what, what do you look back and think, oh, wow, that was so different? The biggest difference to me is the internet um, and how the internet shapes game development, game development processes, uh, you know, what happens to the game on launch or post-launch. So, you know, for instance, when that game went in the box, that game had to be done, man. That game had to be more than just done. It had to be, it had to be tested to death into the ground, not like you know, oh, don't worry, we'll get that on the day one patch. There, there was no day one patch. These things were going to apples, you know, the Apple II. Um, and so I remember, well, it's not specifically Wizardry 1, but, well, no, I can remember it from Wizardry 1, like making sure uh, to test every single possible thing in that game. Every button had to be pressed. Everything had to work, po- everything had to work well. You had to try to break everything. Because once those discs were duplicated, once the game was in the box, it was gone. And that was that. Um, and in 1981, you know, places, 
there were computer stores, but a lot of this, you know, a lot of this, uh, a lot of the games sold via mail order from hobbyist magazines like, you know, say Washington Apple Pie or, uh, or then, you know, or Soft Talk. And so I, I remember, um, I remember just the incredible, uh, the incredible importance of QA, not to just get rid of, you know, the worst bugs, but all of the bugs, um, because you just couldn't ship with something and rely on, a, a, you know, an additional, you know, eight to 10 weeks or whatever it might be, you know, that you've got for, you know, to get the day one patch. Um, or, you know, there's no concept of introducing hot fixes. And if, if I fast forward a bit, there was an example where um, I believe it was Realms of Arcania Blade of Destiny, uh, which was published by Sertek. And something in, in the production process uh, went wrong. And disk three did not duplicate right. So we were later able to prove, like, no, the, the disk that we sent to you, they were right. We don't know what happened on your end, but the disk that we sent to you absolutely were correct. Because I, I you know, I, I was the one who had to play through those, um, or, or at least for those games. Um, and so when it was discovered that every Realms of Arcania that was out there, disk three did not work. It was who I don't know. I don't recall whether it was empty or, or uh, whatever. But it didn't work, and so what this meant was that we had to send out correct disc threes to all the retail outlets who had um, who had stock. We had to send out to people who had already bought it. We had to send them individually a disc three. So you can you you can figure like you're probably at this point taking I don't know. Um, you know, a, a, a dollar or two, just when you take into account, you know, the cost of the disc, the cost of the labor mailing, you know, as well as just, you know, the loss of goodwill. It was a huge blow. I, you know, I remember, I just remember, you know, behind the scenes, people being aghast that this had happened. Um, but, you know, that to me, it, there's, there's just no other way to look at it. It's, it's the internet. The internet is, is, has made, you know, it, it's not, it's, it's, dramatically changed the game industry for the better and you know maybe in some ways for the worse yeah we see even now like the freedoms that the internet has enabled um but then also like kind of the, you know the, the the dangers is a strong word but the 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 negatives that come with that like kind of the um, the community uh, toxic aspects of the community and like stuff like that like it's 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 both a, a blessing and a curse the internet but like you, you can't deny like the the beneficial um impact it's had on on games and games development whether or not we're a bit too reliant on day one patches now that is up for debate but um I, I, on the on the one hand i imagine as a developer it's glorious to be able to fix something like that you you find like without having like you say like ship out all the discs and recall all previous copies but equally oh, but equally like it, you know it, it does seem to be used to kind of i've known install like half the game <laughs> before you know, like we'll fix this half of the game and then when launch comes like we'll, we'll prepare the, the rest of the half of the game in, in day one patch certainly by the download size that's how it feels sometimes <laughs> yeah it's um i mean it's it's so a, a game I recently released. There was an exploit in the game that we just didn't see, and mm. I am forever grateful that we could rely on the internet to get a, a quick fix out there for it, um, because it certainly allowed the game to be won quicker than we had ever imagined um, possible. So, I mean, you know, for that, there's tremendous there's tremendous benefits. I can't even imagine. Um, well, I can't actually imagine. Um, 
making a game during a pandemic uh, with a large distributed team, you know, it would have been a lot of discs and a lot of FedEx going around. And, (laughs) uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it's changed things. Obviously I'm, I'm in no way, shape or form advocating for the removal of the internet, but um, it, it's certainly the development processes that, that we had back then are radically different than the ones we have today because of, because we have that ability. Before we move on, um, I'd like to look at the the series in general because um, I think you're one of the first guests I've had on, if not the first guest, where like you've you've worked on like multiple entries in the series over time, so we can kind of explore how the internet evolved, and the internet, the industry, and the internet evolved around the game. So. Wizardry Proving Grounds was uh, 1981. Wizardry 8 was 2001. Um, so that's like 20 years. Um, what were kind of the, the biggest changes during that period in terms of like, what were the biggest leaps between games? Like you, you've mentioned already, like you know, the, the, the stunning ability for you know, to have multiple colors on a screen. Um, yeah. <laughs> what, what were the, the big changes um, to the industry and games development that changed how you made the Wizardry games? Well, the, the, to me, the the biggest one, um, the biggest one was uh, the advent of uh, 3D engines. So, Wizardry used it. You know, it it looked it it had that first person perspective even back in 1981, but it wasn't using it was you know, tile based. It wasn't using a um, it wasn't using a, a 3D engine, and so that was huge. Um, and it was as well like. You know, during that period of time, there we, there wasn't really standardization um, of of engines. You know, the uh, the id engine, you know, was in uh, several different games, um, but that we didn't have really things like you know, Unreal wasn't ubiquitous at that point in time. Um, certainly, there was no such thing as Unity at that point in time, and so. Every time you were making a game, you were you were throwing the camera out and building the camera from scratch, you know, until you, you know, to to create that next thing. So that you know that was um, you, you know just even to get something at the, the prototype level so that you could see it and get your first playable up there. That was you know that was some really heavy lifting. So I I think I think that was um, to me that is the first thing that comes to mind, but also. Throughout the course of the Wizardry series, and it, you know, it's in hindsight, I think it's easy to look back and, and see certain things. Um, and, and not that these weren't these weren't my my decisions. Um, you know, you know, again, I'm I just I'm a member of the team, not the team, or you know, the head of the team. Um, but the and actually, these these decisions were made, you know, at the business level. But there were several things that were happening during the whole time of the wizardry series so once we get to wizardry 8 we've now seen things like diablo right um and diablo diablo a a number of super hardcore rpg developers are like what is this this is just this is dumbing down of you know it's i guess it felt like the auto-aiming equivalent of the FPS, you know, but the, the reality is, is people wanted to get into a game and have fun and, and not have to deal with all the extraneous stuff that, that some of the really hardcore RPGs brought with them. Um, there's so, so just the, the you know, the, the making games more accessible. There's also the notion of death. So if we go back to wizardry one and, and how we treat players during death like there's and sometimes now we'll talk about a permadeath in games but so here's what happened in wizardry one 
if you your character dies, you'd have you had a party of six characters. One of your characters dies, you take the character back to the castle, you bring him to the Temple of Kant, and you try to resurrect him. If your resurrection fails, that character is reduced to ashes. You're allowed to resurrect again. If you try again and fail, they are erased from the disc. Um, and so there's whole, just there's there's whole I. There's at least one person listening who remembers from 1981 precisely when, like you would, you would need to know to like flip the door open and remove the disc before that character could be erased. And it was very precise timing because if you screwed it up even slightly, the resurrection would not work. Like, like you you wanted it to work, but it was so quick, right? So you know sometimes you would screw it up, and you know they they wouldn't be raised, or sometimes they would be raised. But you, because you remove the disc too fast, you know, now, now they're still dead, uh, there are still ashes. So that was considered normal, right? Like the concept of a tutorial was, you know, get your ass kicked and do it better next time. <laughs> and, you know, that was, that was 1981. Uh, you know, nowadays people <laughs> couldn't imagine, like, I couldn't even imagine as a game designer suggesting, you know what we'll do? We'll erase the character. Like we'll just erase them from the disc and we'll never see them again. Um, but so the notion of death and how we treat death, uh, Steve Moretzky, in fact, I think has, has, you know, especially in the beginning of social games uh, like Farmville, when, you know, players come back and all the crops are dead. And you know, he's talked to, he's talked a fair bit about, you know, that's just not a good player motivation. It's just, why are we punishing players um, just because they took some time in their personal life? Um, so that's one. And then, uh, and then if we take a look, let's see, there's two, jeez, um, oh, there's three more things. I'll, I'll take that, that one later. Um, it's, it's funny when you're thinking like a 20 year history. Um, and I also know John's in the next room and John's probably got a list of 12 things. And so I'm not even going to open <laughs> that door and ask him. But so uh, also with, with Diablo is the rise of multiplayer. So we're starting to see multiplayer role-playing games, which mind you like wizardry as a single player and wizardry, Ultima, Might and Magic, Bard's Tale, all these games as single player single like actual human player RPGs are an aberration, right? Because all RPGs prior to computers and all war games prior to RPGs have multiple players in them. But these games like Might and Magic and Bardstale and Wizardry, they bring in the concept of a party. So you do have multiple characters. It's just you as a godlike player are controlling them all. So in games like Diablo bring in multiplayer immediately, you know, of course, like, well, gee, should we go multiplayer? Um, we were too far down the road to to debate that, right? To to do that, but then there was another huge thing that showed up, which was um, online play. So we have Ultima Online at that point in time, and Wizardry and Ultima had you know been just lockstep since the 1980s. You know there was a Calibeth and Dungeons of Calibeth on the Ultima side. And then Dungeons of Despair, which was the, f- the f- very first wizardry that was not labeled wizardry, but it was sold at, um, uh, I wanna say, I'm not sure, maybe Boston Computer Fair, maybe, um, in 1980. So then you have Ultima, there's, there's, then we, we have Proving Grounds of the Mad Overlord, and then you just, they, they, Ultima and Wizardry just kind of go lockstep with one another. And at some point in time, Ultima goes online. 
Um, you know, and that was like in the industry, there are moments where you just, you know, that there's a big shift that's happening and either you will follow or you won't. Um, somebody's taking a risk. Somebody's going out there and, and doing something. And of course it's more fun to play with your friends, you know, but it's, uh, you know, I remember, I remember that moment, um, uh, just the, the learning about Ultima Online and what they were doing. Um, and Ultima did something else quite different. And this is almost the notion of Ultima ships true full sequels to their games, whereas Wizardry, in a sense, shipped DLCs. So to play Wizardry, to play Wizardry 2 and 3 required that you owned Wizardry 1. And your characters came over from Wizardry 1. So therefore, every game was a subset of the first audience. Right? You were never going to, you know, maybe you would sell a few extra copies, but you were always going to be selling to a subset of that audience. Whereas Ultima took the tack that they were, they were going to be standalone. And so they were always selling to a larger audience. Um, I would say Garriott also did a lot more in terms of um, throw out the old and, you know, bring in the new. And you, you can see that in, you know, the early Wizardry games, they, they visually, they're very similar, um, especially Wizardry 1, 2, and 3. Wizardry 4 even looks far too similar, although it's released much later. And then by the time Bradley, so Bradley had, had done Wizardry 5, um, but by the time Wizardry 6 and 7 get in there, the, the graphical changes start to become more apparent. Um, uh, in, you know, and then again with eight, but the early wizardry, I would say because of its reliance on um, the subset of characters, because it didn't go multiplayer, because it didn't go online, you know, ultimately by 2001, wizardry just was really not able to capture uh, an audience anymore. I mean, it, it did well, critically, it did really well, I, but, you know, it ended up having to go, you know, direct distribution um, an electronics boutique, which was a, a physical uh, a, a brick and mortar store that, that sold uh, games. And, you know, it didn't have, it didn't, it wasn't sold all over the place. It wasn't sold digitally. I mean, now it is, but it wasn't at the time. And I, I don't, you know, I have zero idea about the business reasoning um, behind that. But I know, you know, the game was done. Um, it was it was good, and you know, that's that's how they decide. Maybe that's the best deal they got. You know, so I I really can't comment on that. Marvelous. Well, we've covered a lot of ground there. We're actually going to pick up on a couple of those themes, particularly um, uh, making games more accessible and the shifts in the industry as we move on to your second game. Ravenwood Fair was released in 2010 for Facebook, developed and published by LOL Apps. Uh, what was your role on this game and perhaps a description of what the game is? So Ravenwood Fair was a social game. And basically there is a, a fair, Ravenwood Fair. Uh, it, it is, it's all overgrown. Um, it's, a, it's a bit of a magical fair. It's, it's in a magical forest. And you, the player, are effectively trying to bring it back to life um, and, and try to bring people back to it and, and trying to create a, um, well, I guess, trying to create a happy place to be. 
So it was the, the thing that was really interesting to me. So now, you know, we're, we're in the 2010s and, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've long since left. Um, well, I guess not that long since because I worked on Dungeons and Dragons after Wizardry, but I, I, for long enough, I'd left role playing behind. and I just wanted to make something without a sword. So all the, the, this, 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 at the time, social games, it was fascinating to me because if we take something like D&D or like play-by-mail games where you are playing asynchronously with, I don't know, you know, five to ten players, I was, I was blown away by the thought that you, you were playing asynchronously with potentially millions of players across the social graph. This is something that hadn't been done before. And also, because the games were you know, a couple, a couple of things, because they were played by people who, who at least at this point in time, a lot of people that were coming to the games didn't have a lot of game literacy. So terms like you know line of sight or um, you know the, certainly the concept of taking turns, okay, but a lot of the other you know they would of course be familiar with that. Anything that would have come from like traditional family board games, but so many of the game mechanics that were that we would consider normal um, just hadn't been seen by many of these players and in addition to that because the average play time uh, was short the, the games themselves had to be fairly shallow so and, and, I, and that's not to say not complex I mean the things that were going on in these games could absolutely be complex but it just meant by shallow I mean you had to walk away from this game for a month, uh, come back, you know, and, and be able to pick up very quickly where you left off. So contrast that with something like coming back to a game of Civilization or coming back to a game of The Sims where you're like, what the hell is going on? Um, and then you just decide it's smarter to restart because you don't have any idea what's going on. And by the time you figure out what's going on, you're, you're dead or people are, are losing their marbles. So, um, so, so Ravenwood Fair, uh, we, we, I worked on that game with Lullaps. And in fact, there were, they had a couple games going on at the time. And so um, I, I, I knew somebody who was quite interested in the space just because, well, it was my, my husband, John. He's, he's really interested in anything. Like, has it not been done before? Oh, I'm in, I want to do something there. And he, it, it was obvious to any game developers at the time that this, this, this Facebook game market, which, which many of us had sort of just like whatever, um, cast it aside as you know not real games or not casual, you know like now these are casual games or whatever. Like this will this will be a flash in the pan, and you know it, it maybe it was you know maybe after seven years that was about that was about all there was to it, or maybe even five years, maybe it was shorter. But nonetheless, so many really well-regarded, well-respected game developers were super curious about the space, super curious about the players and what could be done. Uh, and that would be the case with Ravenwood Fair. So I asked John if he wanted to work on this game. And, and so he did, you know, and, and the, the mechanics in the game um, and how the game functions, um, the play of the game, you know, that's all down to John. And I, there's this really interesting, um, this really interesting thing that happened with Ravenwood Fair, which is a look at the broader game market in itself. In many cases, when people, uh, during this time, so Ravenwood Fair was really successful. It did unbelievably well uh, for Lollaps. And at one point in time, it had more monthly players than World of Warcraft. 
so it was just, it was raking in cash hand over fist. And um, I, I remember people saying like, well, yeah, what's John Romero? Oh, he's in social games. Like, you know, sort of, and it not just, not just, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have, didn't take as much of that, but I think because John is traditionally known for shooters, it was just like, well, you know, look at the, look what he's doing now. Whereas it was, it, it which is bizarre, right? Like it, that form of gameplay, um, that form of gameplay is uh, was completely valid and you know super interesting and had a huge audience. But I, we can now also draw corollaries even if we go way back and way back now um, to the early 1980s when people would say, you know, people don't play games on their computers or that computers were not hobbyists; they were serious business machines. Um, people who wanted to really play role-playing games would be playing them on a table. Um, or if we go back to the Computer Game Developers Conference, what, or sorry, if we go back to the Game Developers Conference when it was known as the Computer Game Developers Conference, and this idea that they were going to let, they were going to take the word computer out of it, thus letting all those console people in, and how that was going to fundamentally change everything. There were huge heated arguments over this, which may sound ridiculous in retrospect, Similarly, there were huge heated arguments over whether we will have RSAC, the rating system, or the ESRB, the Software Publishers Association, because that represented, again, you know, prime, there, were, there were a lot of console manufacturers and console game creators, right? And so this notion, like, fundamentally, these, these are two massively different things, and, if, and if, if they join, something will go wrong. Anytime there is a... a, a a platform, a big enough platform shift. I, you know, I noticed that, that sort of stuff, you know, even people arguing like, which is the best console. And, you know, it's, it's just, they're all games who, you know, who cares whether they're on a tabletop, your phone, um, you know, on a VR headset, it's, it's all games. It's all part of the same thing. So I'm going to um, dig deeper into this, if I if I may. Um, we spoke on a recent episode of the, you know, the standard games industry.biz podcast, the weekly news show. Um Brendan Sinclair, our, our North American editor, um, runs a ten month, a ten years ago this month column where he looks back at coverage and stuff that we did, you know, exactly a decade ago and how things have changed. And it brought up to March 2011 GDC where there was this big debate about social games, not necessarily mobile games. Smartphone, smartphone gaming hadn't quite taken off and hadn't quite become the free to play giant that it is now. It wasn't um, as big. It was. It was up and coming obviously it was starting the app store launched in 2008 um certainly a lot of the uh, mobile games had become cheap you know like 99p but there was a lot of talk about social games and um we actually quoted you in this article um you had your own rant session at gdc i believe was the term <laughs> used um but you were talking about because i believe you were still at uh, you were at loot drop at the time yeah um yeah. and you said um you, and you compared it back then to like you know how how people claimed that you know uh, things like wizardry were ruining the idea of uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, you said, "I know that things are upsetting to you, and I can sh- assure you that you are. They are also upsetting to me. I have seen the strip miners make their entry into games. I have seen them exploit technology and new platforms, not for the f- purpose of crafting beautiful creative works, but for the purpose of taking the audience for all they can get. They are not one of us, nor are they from us." Rather, they are from another space. We, presumably you meaning Loop Drop, are absolutely not the ones making what some of you call 
evil games. We are the first wave, the Marines storming the beach to take our culture and our medium back. As you look upon these games, you will see the very same horizon, on the very same horizon, a great space of possibility. I hope that you will someday be the occupying force. How did that work out in terms of... Man, (laughs) Jesus, boy, I I was on a roll, wasn't I? So I didn't mean just, I didn't actually mean just us. I meant, um, I, I meant game developers in mm. general. So where the game developers at that point in time had just kind of ignored like, like the very earliest social games, like something, do you remember when Facebook had poke, like you could poke somebody? I do. So, so Slide, a game company called Slide created something called Super Poke Pets. And it was, you know, it was, it was the, like a virtual pet game on Facebook. So the, the, earliest, the earliest games on the social graph were not from game developers or even people who were really interested in games. It was like, what is, I'm a technologist. What is the next thing that I can do that's cool? Oh, health apps are cool. Oh, this is cool, you know? And, and, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a skill set, right? You know, to be able to identify these opportunities in the market. And so the games that were being made at that point in time were using, like, absolutely were using things that, that, you know, that Facebook was was working on, you know, kind of banning left and right. So, um, but but while, while that exploit was available, they would just go for it. Or like, I don't know if you remember these, the early ads, like something would pop up and say, do you want to, do your baby sheep needs food, feed your baby sheep which would require you to ask friends for help or in the button would say something like, let it die. Right. Yeah. <laughs> God. Right. And so um, many game developers, so there, many game developers were just kind of aghast at, at what was then quite obviously strong arm um, or, or like uncomfortable, gross uh, ways of, 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 of doing microtrans. But there was also much to people's mortification. Like, bear in mind at this point in time, when these games come out, we are still largely in the ship it when it's done form of game development. Um, and so, like, sure, some, you know, some bug, we, we definitely, obviously, have the ability to send out, uh, you know, patches. Um, we have the ability to update things if necessary. There, you know, we are seeing, like, at this point in time, you know, Steam exists. Um, but the way that games would go out then where they would put out the MVP, you know, minimum viable product. So, you know, why not send the game out when, you know, so, so that players, you know, like you, you are, there's enough of the game there. And this is what I think was so upsetting to so many people at the, at, at the so many traditional game developers, that there's enough of the game there that you could send it out and make money off of it while so you're you're at least some money's coming in while you continue to develop it and and that was just not something that that game developers really did right like there was this i I, here's this thing i've created and i've taken pride in creating this thing um here it is and here it is in its box or here it is in its finished form and suddenly people are sending stuff out with which doesn't feel finished you know it maybe isn't finished (laughs) like um, and so a lot of game developers uh, took great offense at that, and they took offense at at um, how it was uh, it 
it just it was a, a, a big cultural shift for games at the time. Yeah, I, I feel like at this point in time, the two, the game industry has learned from that industry. And likewise, you know, you know, I, I don't think there are that many games on social graphs. Um, you know, they're, they're, I would say, you know, it's more the mobile market. Mm. Um, but, you know, maybe we've learned, we've learned from each other and, you know, like I, you know, early access, like early access, I guess, is, is, you know, kind of what was happening back then, except there were, there were no game developers. <laughs> All the game developers that I knew that were in the social space, whose games were being released ahead of time, were so embarrassed that they kept their names off of them. All of them. Wow. Right. Like and we would talk to each other like, Jesus Christ, can you believe they, I know I couldn't believe they did it. And, and they were just, I don't want to even be, I, you know, like I, I took it off my LinkedIn. I don't even want to even know I work at the company. I'm, I'm just, this is an example of, of somebody that I, I know that they did that. Um, but it was a real, it was a real cultural issue at the time. And we felt like, uh, well, we, I, it certainly one of the the tenor of conversation among traditional game developers was that you know people were just coming through and exploiting people who had not played games before for all they could get and eventually you know that you know the 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 way it was people coming from the web app world and eventually they you know they move on and like you know some of the biggest players at that time are are not in games anymore they've moved on to whatever the next thing is unless their company you know is actually still around um, but yeah, it was, you know, it was another, another case of, you know, a, a big social changing, big, uh, big social change, big cultural change in games. How do you think that changed? Or do you think that has changed? I asked that because it, as we were talking about this um, on the podcast and we were discussing, like, it still feels like there's a perception that some or a lot of social and free to play games, particularly on mobile, obviously, because it's not as many it's not as, as big on the Facebook space as it used to be, um, are still designed to exploit, designed to monetize primarily, you know, first and foremost designed to monetize. Um, example from a couple of years ago, I remember Eurogamer running a headline about Hogwarts mystery, the Harry Potter game, um, Harry Potter game, you know, a new Harry Potter game charges you to stop for a child from being strangled. And it's like within the opening half hour of this game like you know the story leads to the point where your your character is 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 wrapped up in devil's snare that that plant that kind of starts strangling anyone that's in it and you can either wait for the timer to run like you've, you've obviously got to tap away to use your energy to get out of that situation and then once you've run out you've got a limited amount of energy so you don't have enough to do it in one hit so you can either wait for your energy to recharge and come back later or you pay money and then you're a game of perhaps justifiably argued like right you're paying you're being asked to pay to stop a child from being strangled um so yeah i, I guess like have we got past that perception or past that that attitude and i'm not going to pick on hogwarts mystery because that's just an example but like you know it it's a it's a bit it's it's a different case from you know do you want to let your sheep die on farmville or whatever it is yeah you know, it's still not a good look no, you know, and it's um, in. So maybe you know, maybe we haven't gotten past it. I think, I you know, I think that there is. Um, it, it's a it's a much different it's a much different way of of making games, right? It's and actually, I should have listed that. Like, there's been so many massive changes. Um, 
so many massive changes. Like I mentioned, you know, if, 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 you know, everything from like my computer is sitting on top of my hard drive. Right. And like, I can't include, I have to be really careful about how much music is included, if any, because will it even fit on the disc? Right. Like that sort of stuff. But free to play is, was a huge game changer. Ha ha. That was the actual word that came to my head. I'm sorry. Um, (laughs) The, in how the industry operates and, and, and it, you know, fundamentally, like those games, are, they're still expensive to make, right? And how how do you so how do you get that money? Like people, you know, people aren't you know making games like games on mobile phones and on on the social graph, you know, for um, you know for I don't know just to be nice. So therefore, it makes sense if you're going to play a free to play game and you're not paying up front, that game has to do things to get that money from you. I, you know, I, I'll take a look at a couple examples. Um, you know, so if you say something like, you know, Farmville or, or Harry Potter or, you know, really any of, you know, there's a million mobile games, right? There's one thing like playing, paying for additional content or like I was playing, I was playing the absolute hell out of Hearthstone. Um, and it occurred to me, like, I have not given, I've, I've played the hell out of it. I certainly feel like I've gotten value from the game. Um obviously and but I haven't paid anything for it and so then I thought like you know I should buy I should buy some decks and I and because I really enjoyed what they've created uh and so I did uh so that you know that to me was a a fundamentally different experience than the free-to-play pay-to-win model um where you could have uh you oh I remember some of the things just based on that the, the previous quote that you mentioned, um, where where it's about you know sort of uh, you know fleecing whales for all you can get and learning about some of the like super gross monetization mechanics like you would think you would think somebody who's been who's who's spent a lot of money in your game um, that you would you know that this would be a reward like you would you would reward them with something. But instead, because this is somebody that people know will spend a lot of money, in, in some cases, the prices for their items would be higher because they knew that they would spend more. Um, and there's all kinds of subtle things like that. Or if you've been away from the game for a while, you know that there are incentives or like re-engagement mechanics. And all of these things are completely valid. It is the way free-to-play works. Like If you want to play a game for free, like you think about it, like you can't go to a restaurant for free. Like you, you're going to pay for this one way or another. If it were a free to free to play restaurant, free to eat restaurant, you would be charged for the table and the plate, um, the utensil. Uh, you know, like did you want to breathe air? Oh, did you want to eat this inside? You know, like oh, you wanted to stand in line. You wanted to actually look at the food. Like that's going to cost you. Like they would find some way to get that money out of you. Um, but but a lot of these a lot of these things just didn't set quite right or or feel ethical um to uh to the way we we traditionally did things in games um there's also you know at the point at that point in time and this would be totally true of the web app world um that you know for instance if you see the way facebook not facebook sorry like if we were just take a site like amazon and this is the way amazon this is their flow their purchase flow so we would you know, people, you could see that and go, oh my goodness, why aren't we doing that on our site? That's such a good idea. Let's do that. And it was considered like a fast follow, but fast follow in games in some cases meant literally copying the economy, 
uh, in lawsuits resulted and were won based on that sort of stuff. So it was, um, it, it was just, yeah, it was a clash of cultures. I'm very conscious that we're almost an hour into this episode. We've only covered two of your five games. I mean, we could probably say we've covered nine because we talked about the entire Wizardry series, but uh, I do think we should move on to your third game. Gunman Taco Troc was released in 2017 for PC, Mac, iOS, and Android, published by Romero Games, and we'll get onto the developer in a moment. What was your role on this game? Um, well, I gave birth to the designer of the game, which is <laughs> first and foremost. Um, How do you put that in the credits? <laughs> I, I don't think it is in the credits, actually. Um, but uh, but it wouldn't have happened without me, I can assure you that. Um, uh, <laughs> but I was, uh, I guess helping design QA, um, a general wrangler, uh, public relations, whatever, um, around the whole thing. Marvellous. Um, so perhaps you can tell us a little bit about the uh, the designer and how this game came about. Sure. Yeah. So Gunman, Gunman, I would say like for the, for the pure warm and fuzzies, Gunman will always be the, the favorite game that I've ever worked on because it's, it's, it's going to be hard for any, any game to ever be, you know, the smile my son had when he saw his favorite streamer playing the game. So, uh, so Gunman Taco Truck was the result of a coding lesson with between John and and Donovan. And what they would do, they would do coding lessons every weekend, and and just to, you know, to make it interesting, it would be like, okay, well, let's make up a game, and we'll start working on that. So that day, Donovan had an idea for a game called Gunman Taco Truck. So they started working on it. Later that evening. Donovan comes down and he says, I've got an idea. And like the whole game has shown up fully formed to him. And so he starts talking about it. Now he was eight or nine at the time. Gosh, maybe not even, maybe anyway, he was young. Um, and so he is, he's talking about it. Like John, John is also there. And I, I was like, wait, hold on, hold on. Because Donovan at this point in time had already been making games, but he didn't know how to code. So he would draw the games like the whole screen he would draw the screen he'd draw the save and load screen in a notebook right and like you could go through and like his first time he finished one it was 79 pages and we held the launch party for it um and and so this one he was talking about it i said hold on let me get my camera so i i or my phone i so i i videoed him um with doing the pitch and then i put it up on facebook and a you several of our friends like we guys are going to make this game right and it was just such a funny idea like the idea that that you know somebody had set off these you know seven atomic bombs and that there was this mexican guy in a taco truck driving around um blowing up all these irradiated animals shooting them and then bringing the meat to the safe zones and, and serving tacos to the survivors and that he had to get to Winnipeg, Canada, because they don't have any, they don't have any taco trucks up there and they need something and winners go to Winnipeg. And it was such, so it was such a ridiculous idea that I don't know that I, such a ridiculous and wonderful idea that I don't, I don't know that I would have come up with it. Like it, it took a seven or eight year old. Um, and so enough people mentioned that. So, so John just felt like, well, you know, there's, there, you know, this is probably the best form of education. And so they set about to do it. And then our eldest son, Michael, got involved. And then um, uh, uh, Ian Dunbar, who was then a student of ours, um, and then came to work with us and still works with us. In fact, he's now lead programmer in Empire of Stin. Um, 
And then Paul Conway, who was a, an Irish-based artist, got involved in Dryden McDonald, who was a musician. And so we just started making the game. Um, and we, uh, it was, it's the only game that I've ever accidentally released. So on Steam, you normally, like, we would go through a publisher, right? But on Steam, there's, like, a field where you put the date in. Like, what's the release date? And then there's a field, like, go ahead and ship it. And we, I, we thought those were connected, but it turns out they're not. Like when you say, go ahead and send it out, it doesn't care what that date is, out it goes. So we accidentally released the game. I mean, <laughs> fortunately, it was, it was done, but I, it came about because I, I remember it was like 10 o'clock at night. And, I'm, and I said to John, like, why am I getting all of these emails? Like there were like 10 emails went by the time I said this from streamers asking for keys. Uh, and, and it turns out like when Steam, when something, when a new game is launched, a tweet comes out from Steam just to let people know that this new game is available, which triggers this landslide of people asking for Steam keys. Um, and so we look, I, I, I go to the Steam store and I'm like, my God, it's there. You know, and I just remember, <laughs> I remember John going, how? And it was just, it was just, you know, like a, a, a comedy really. Um, and, and then, you know, eventually I just said to him, well, I, I guess we're working tonight then, you know, we just got about it. We wrote the press release, probably sent it out at 11 PM or something. Uh, but yeah, it was really, it was delightful. And then um, Gunman was featured, featured by Apple uh, three times, in fact, and they, they wrote up something on Donovan um, and he, and he made enough money to put himself through college. Um, uh, he, you know, he, which he was delighted with and you know, he really got to see um, and then he did like he had his crazy game developer buy anything you want moments so he went out and bought the biggest lego he could imagine buying in a <laughs> switch and he was <laughs> and there were there were a couple companies that were interested in purchasing gunman um and so he got a, a we didn't sell it he he got swag like these swag bags from these things with like a bunch of t-shirts and he was like king of the house you know and his sisters are like can I have a t-shirt you know oh my goodness it was it was just it was a, it was his moment of glory it was really pretty pretty fantastic it's such a brilliant story and I'm so so glad you picked this one for as one of your five games and for me the what I love about this game is like it really kind of illustrates how the barriers to entry for games development have come down. Um, like, you know, you, you hear stories of, of, you know, young teenagers like back in the 70s, 80s, et cetera, programming their own games because at the risk of oversimplifying, things were less complex then. It was, it was a much simpler medium to get into. Um, and then obviously as, as, you know, the rise of 3D and engines and complex, you know, more complex coding languages and so forth, it, it became harder, harder for just anyone to get into it. Now, obviously, Donovan has the the brilliant advantage of having John Romero as a personal tutor, <laughs> but <laughs> like what, yeah. <laughs> which is convenient, and uh, and and you know, a fully formed you know experienced team that are happy to jump on and help him finish the rest of it. But my point is, like, what does Gunman Taco Truck say about how the industry has changed in terms of the the barriers to entry for younger people and for the ability for anyone to just start making games? Oh, so much, really. I mean, you know, so Gunman was made with uh, the Corona SDK. It was made in Lua, all in Lua. It, it was incredibly accessible. Like, if I contrast that with what it, you know, when you'd see a game like, say, any of Nasser Trebelli's games or any of Bill Budge's games back in the 80s, and you'd think, like, how, uh, how, how is, like, I, 
every Nasser Jabelli game for me was an exercise in how the hell are they doing that? They, he, how the hell is he doing that? Um, and you, you fundamentally, like, sure, you could make a game in basic, but if you really wanted to have any speed to it, you had to write it in assembly language. And that was, for many people, that was an insurmountable wall. You know, that was, that was just, whereas, whereas Lua, Lua is, Lua is friendly. Lua is an accessible coding language. And even like getting into Unity or Unreal, right? Like there are now ready-made accessible engines and not like RPG maker or game maker. Like there's, there's processing even like, I, you know, I'm not saying that we're going to processing or scratch that we're going to, you know, you're not going to see any giant games come out and, and on that. I'm pretty confident, but so many of these things are, are, it's, it's, it's much easier than it ever was not to mention um, you know, for me, when I first started, I had access to a magazine, one, that had code in it. And, and the, the only way I was going to learn was by making mistakes. There was no internet that I could go to. Um, there, there, I didn't know until 1981, I didn't know anybody else who programmed. Um, I, there were no books available. Uh, you know, but again, you know, I was pretty isolated in a rural farming community. Um, but now like you, everything that you need is available. Like there are complete coding tutorials in whatever language you desire, uh, on YouTube, um, not to mention online classes all over the place. For me, you know, I ended up, for me, Dungeons and Dragons, you know, the, the player's guide and the dungeon master's guide, uh, in, in men and magic, those that to me was that was the template of my career like that's it was a system laid bare and so as a game designer I had the going forward but for young coders much different you know, just just much different um uh, also how do you how do you get your how do you get your game out there you know, the barriers to entry I mean on the one hand the barriers to entry are 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 just so much lower than they ever were which is great but that also means that there are a hundred times more games coming out a thousand times more who knows uh, that just because the barrier to entry is so low that the quality just isn't there there are those stats that go around like um the number of games released on steam i think it was a couple of years ago there were there were more games released on steam in one year than there were all years prior combined because that barrier had just evaporated and yeah you can't guarantee the quality in there i mean i <laughs> i i'm gonna draw on my only game one of my only game development experiences i did a game jam a couple of years ago and yeah like unity is is incredible and the, again go this goes back to what you were saying earlier about like the internet has just changed everything and that i was able to just quickly look up um five ten minute youtube videos and program things like all right i can get a sprite and i can, yeah. can program it to move around this area following a, a certain path I can do that. If even I can do that, then anyone can do that. And you will have people who go out there and just, and the game I made, let's be clear, was awful, like so bad, but I didn't ship it. Like we, I mean, I know, I, th I think the, the student I was um, working with has put it on kind of an, on, on itch just for the hell of it, but we weren't like trying to sell it or anything. Um, like, yeah. So the, the fact that those barriers are down and you will have people just push out whatever they've made because someone might buy it and then that that counts as success and, and if that's what they want good for them but yeah it it's hard to get away from the idea 
it's causing this discoverability issue of there are just so, so many games out there. How do you separate? How do you find the hidden gems, as it were? Yeah. I Another thing, too, if, if I just contrast um, me and, and, you know, say, John coming up versus Donovan. So Donovan, when he pitched this idea, it was pitched fully formed. You know, there was he knew he understood what the core loop was. He he understood how players progress. He understood the concept of win and loss. He understood the concept of um, uh, of well of the core loop. And you know, part of that is just living in a in a game development household. Like you know, once I remember, I was I was going to the store, and he said, "Mommy, mommy," I, you know, he comes running out the door. I need you to get some pencils. It was some school. It was, I'm pretty sure it's pencils. And as I'm heading, I, okay, I'll get them. And as I'm heading toward the car, he just he says, with, he absolutely means it. He says, "Mommy, that's a P1," meaning like in the development talk, like that that is like, well, it's not a P0, which is the like, oh my god, everything trauma unit bug, but P P1 is like this is critically important. It needs to be done today. Uh, you know, it's this is should be you shouldn't work on anything else. And so I was I'm like, he's like tasked me because obviously John and I, you know. Where we use this language all the time, so um, so the fact that Donovan had this game literacy, you know, that he had he had well he had sat on while John was playing WoW, both he and Avalon when they were really little, they used to sit on his lap and watch him play WoW or watch him play if, as long as it was appropriate, right? Mm. They would um, uh, they they loved to watch him play when they were little. And then um, as they grew, you know, they're, they are, they're sort of this, 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 they're becoming literate and fluent in what makes a game work, both through play and both through hearing. Whereas for John and I, man, that was just like, the, there wasn't even, like, we didn't even have a language. Like, I, I don't know if you, you remember, um, there's a great article by Greg Stickian, uh, which is, I have no words. Um, it was based on Harlan Ellison. Um, I have no words and I must scream. I have no mouth and I must scream. I have no words and I must design something like that. And then, um, and then also Doug church uh, wrote an article just about how the game industry really lacks a, a, a means of discussing what it's doing. So even like up until the nineties, you know, we, there, there was a struggle to communicate and that's just a struggle Donovan didn't even have to deal with. Right. Cause it, you know, by that point in time, a lot of our language had been, you know, a lot of our language had been locked down and, and made sense. Um, uh, and, and so, you know, he just, he just had a huge jump and the kids have a huge jump on this. Like I can't imagine going to college to learn game development from people who have made games. There's so much of the stuff that we were doing then was, was trial and error. Um, but well, it all is still trial and error, really. But the, you know, the one huge benefit that the developers, you know, who were early and first to do certain things had was that it was just a Cambrian explosion, right? Like, has somebody made a game up about this before? No, great, I'm going to do it. You know, and just like it was just everything, everything was completely available. Whereas, it, and there's still, there's lots of new ground. I, I I'm fully believe that there's loads of new ground. Um, that that is that is that we can still cover, uh, but we start to see people. If, if you take a look at what's happened with the shooter genre, you know it's gone from uh, it's gone from being called Doom clones to uh, 
um, to first person shooters and now like battle Royale. And, you know, there's like all these different styles of shooters. Um, uh, and anyway, we, just the market getting more and more segmented, but we were so lucky at the time just to have, um, just to have that, you know, wide, wide availability, uh, of possibility. Well, speaking of first person shooters, let's move on to your fourth game. <laughs> Sigil was released in 2019 for PC, later added to Doom on Switch, Xbox One, PS4, and mobile, developed by John Romero. Um, this is, I believe, like kind of the, I, I think Bethesda have made it canonical, like the fifth episode of Doom. Like it's, it's John's um, mods and like a, a whole new campaign. And um, what was your role on this? How did you work with John on this? So, well, John and I pretty much work on everything together. And the reason I wanted to include Sigil on this is, like, I'm not going to pretend even for a second that I was creating those levels, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it would be pretty obvious if I was. I mean, I've, I've certainly made a lot of levels, but they're all in RPGs. Um, so it's, it's quite a different style of design. But with Sigil, um, uh, it, one, of the th one of the things about John is, is that, you know, like it or not, he, um, uh, he will... Doom will forever be attached to him and he will forever be attached to Doom. And I, I remember once at this one conference uh, we were at, you know, somebody had said like, uh, oh, he's going to talk about, he's going to, I forget what he was talking about at that point in time. There was some talk he was giving and people said, he just talks about Doom an awful lot. And, and I thought, well, it's, people ask about Doom all the time. And so he gave this talk, which had nothing to do with Doom. In fact, I think it was an over, oh, I know what it actually was. It was his overview of his career, right? Which is a long career. So sure, Doom was a part of it, but he's made 150 games, one of which was Doom. Um, and so he does this, here comes the questions. And the questions are always the same. Doom, 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 hair, Doom, 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 hair, quick, right? Maybe, right? <laughs> like something like that. And so he wanted to do something special to mark the anniversary of, of doom. So we decided, uh, well, why doesn't he create uh, a couple levels? And so he was just warming up. Um, and so he released E1, I can't remember which one came out first, but E1M8B, he released that. And oh my God, it went everywhere. Just everywhere like cnn for god's sakes wrote an article about it you know that john had sort of you know <laughs> that john had like dusted off his level design chops and worked on that level and those both were warm-up levels um for what would become sigil so sigil was him uh you know effectively creating a new episode for the canonical doom and we wanted so john is busy on those levels and those levels were all done outside of like normal work stuff and uh, he worked on the game uh, in in pockets of time. So he, when we go on vacation, he he likes to code while he's on vacation, like you know, do something new that he's not done before, or learn another programming language. And so he always brings his computer. And this was no different. Um, he, but he was instead he was working on Sigil. So he worked on Sigil in so many countries. Like he worked on Sigil in Gibraltar, in Spain, in France, in Italy. Uh, in fact, it's in the Guinness Book of World Records is the thing that has been worked on in the most different places, like by a single individual. 
even on a train, and there was a guy on the train who recognized John, recognized that it was Doom, recognized that it was a level he didn't know. He was a hardcore player. And was so suddenly he starts asking John about it uh, in French, which John doesn't speak, and I barely speak, but you know, we were able to have a conversation, which mostly included, please don't say anything publicly about this. Um, <laughs> but we wanted to make sure that whatever this was, both John and I are, are uh, big box collectors. And we wanted to make sure that this was a beautiful big box. And so while John was working on the game, I was figuring out like, what are all the things that we could put inside the game? Um, we knew we wanted to have a CD. We knew we wanted to have it on a three and a half diskette, we, but which is a USB. We knew we wanted to have um, a book that went with it. Um, so uh, that told the story of Sigil and, and how it came to be and why it was made. And, uh, the inclusion of Buckethead, which was just this whole uh, great, you know, just wonderfully wonderful thing because John's a huge Buckethead fan. Um, we wanted the box to be the most metal-looking box ever in the history of games, and so uh, worked with Christopher Lavelle, um, and he's the he's the exceptional artist who did both the Beast box cover and um, and the standard box cover. And then we worked with Limited Run for the actual uh, release of the game. So. While John was uh, making levels and and killing things and preparing for people to be killed, all of that organizational stuff, that's what I was handling. And so it was a, for me, it was like a, while I had certainly worked on stuff like that um, at Surtech, mostly just like, okay, there's, we all hands on deck, you know, shoving stuff into boxes and shoving uh, stuff through a shrink wrapper. This involved the whole production of a project from beginning, a collectible project from beginning to, to end. And it wasn't something I had done before, but as a collector myself, I knew the quality that I would want in the box. I knew, I knew what I would want to see. And so it was a real, it was a real labor of love. We were thrilled with how, how well Sigil did. Um, uh, and so, you know, that was, that was basically, uh, you know, that, that was my, what I, what, what I ended up doing on the project. Um, Sigil as a, we gave away, so Sigil also had some other weird elements to it. Sigil was free. Um, if you wanted the paid version, it came with, with the, you, you paid for the box, you paid for the t-shirt, you paid for the, um, John's head on a stake, which was, which is, was ended up being much larger than we thought it was going to be and therefore much heavier um, and much more expensive. Uh, I, th I sometimes feel like the box weight is you know, 75% that head in the rest <laughs> is the box. It really is super heavy. Um, but just, you know, the game wasn't designed to, uh, to make a ton of money. It didn't, you know, it was, it was, it was a limited run, hence uh, limited run. So, uh, you know, the beast box was numbered and autographed. Um, uh, and it's, you know, there, there's not that many of them out there in the world. Uh, but anyway, that was my role. It was really cool. I like, like John, I also like doing new things. Um, and it was a labor of love and we know people were really happy with it and really happy with the quality, uh, really happy with the quality of it. We are planning to do that again. The next game that we'll be doing is a boxed release of John's original Dangerous Dave game. Nice. Uh, we just got the prototype box. It is, it's even better than the Sigil box, though obviously not as evil as the Sigil box. But the uh, but we're we're looking forward to getting that out. You know, hopefully sometime this year. There's there's no release date when it's when it's ready. It'll be for sale and then out it'll go. But we're we're looking forward to doing a, a limited release of um, Dangerous Dave, which was never sold in a box. Although uh, it's 
it's more well-regarded in India um, than Doom, believe it or not. <laughs> it's interesting about how different uh, different markets take to different titles, isn't it? Um, I, I found Sigil uh, a kind of a fascinating inclusion here uh, because out of all the, the five games we've got here, and even five games in previous episodes of this series, um, this one is essentially a mod or, a, or an expansion. It's not... Uh, it's not a standalone game in the kind of traditional sense. So I thought this would be a good uh, jumping off point to talk about how modding has evolved over the course of, of your career, you know, kind of since 1981, like how the modding scene has evolved, because I know that's something um, very important to John and, and to yourself. Like, yeah, like how, how, how's, I, I have never got involved in modding personally. I'm not much of a, uh, I'm not a PC player. I don't den- tend to download mods, but I, I always find it fascinating to read about. Um, and like, you know, reading these complete com- overhauls that people do for other games or just the stuff that they add to them. Like how have the, the opportunities for mods changed over the past, you know, however many years. If I go all the way back to the beginning, um, there was at some point in time at Surtech, I discovered the Wizardry editor, which was never released publicly, at least to my to my knowledge. Uh, if it was, it was leaked. Um, I know it's not. I know it's not out there generally, but you could go in and you could change the levels. And I I spent oh my goodness hours and hours and hours and hours creating my own Wizardry levels. So my introduction to modding was relatively early. I also. I also was making mods of, of board games from the time I was five. You know, I would get the rules, but hey, this would be more fun if we would do this. And I ended up rewriting an entire RPG because I didn't like, um, I didn't like the way that it handled encumbrance. And in retrospect, I'm sure that you know every one of these modifications that I'm talking about was like. I wasn't even. I was barely a teenager at this point in time, so I'm not saying that there. Are, there's no quality bar here. Uh, but when we start seeing mods come out, like especially with uh, Wolf- Wolfenstein, like to mod that, that was some effort. Um, but with Doom, they, you know, because they made it fully open, the mod community, I, I, I feel, I feel like I have a unique perspective, a, a unique viewpoint into the mod community because when John and I go to like any conferences, any gamer conferences, any tech conferences. We hear so many people who talk about having gotten their start in technology or gotten their start in games because they built mods to uh, for Doom. And so, I, I, I think I, I feel like I'm sure I'm sure, wow, gee, I'm sure John would have obviously an even better perspective on this. But the Doom mod community is so incredibly tight um, and so so old, so established um, that. Uh, you know, it, 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 to me, it set the standard for extensibility in games so that you could release it, but then you could put the tools into players' hands to keep it alive for, you know, in the case of Doom, literal decades. Um, and there, I, I'm also thinking like during, when would it have been? Early 2000s with hot coffee, um, the hot coffee modification that, that uh, Patrick Wildenborn put back into the game which just just allowed it like mods once you know, they sort of when they when they came out during doom's time and people are just modding the hell out of everything and putting all these levels out there that was that was fantastic and an explosion in its own right but the idea that somebody could modify a game and fundamentally change it so that players now you know could access content that hadn't been rated that was a really big issue. I, and I don't know if you remember, but 
it was asserted at the time, like, absolutely not, that content is not there. Um, and they, you know, they, they, you know, Patrick Wildenbarg had said, like, look, bring me, put me in a room and I will show you, put me in a room with nothing else and watch me. I will show you how I'm basically just flipping a bit and allowing this stuff that's already on the disc to exist. So mods also were, were hugely controversial, but uh, I, I feel that the, the, the lasting power of being able to do mods is from a developer and publisher point of view is really about extensibility and about keeping that IP alive and about allowing players to have a degree of agency, not just over the game and their, their characters in the game, but how the game itself functions. So, you know, changing the, the way that healing works or uh, any mod, like I'm, I'm specifically thinking of some XCOM mods, but there's, there's, there's so many games at this point that have been modded that it, it's, I think it's a great thing for players. And I certainly think that many game developers get their start through being a part of some mod community or another. Very conscious of how much of your time I'm taking up. So we're going to move on to your fifth and final game. Empire of Sin was released in 2020 for PC, Mac, PS4, Xbox One, and Switch, developed by Romero Games, published by Paradox Interactive. What was your role on this particular title? I was the game director for Empire of Sin. Okay, so for, for, for those who may be listening that are not uh, on development teams, what does the game director do? That's a good point. Um, everything, it feels <laughs> like. Uh, I guess yeah, for Empire of Sin, um, Empire of Sin starts you know, in my head, not as Empire of Sin, but just as a fascination, um, which is normal enough for game developers. I was fascinated in 1920s Prohibition era. Uh, I grew up in northern New York, as I've mentioned, and uh, on the Canadian border. So the running of alcohol was was a known thing uh, in our town, and there was a bar across the street from where I where I had an apartment at some point um, when I was younger, and it called the place. And it was allegedly the oldest continuously operating bar in the U.S. And so I was fascinated by that. And I remember as a kid asking my mother, "How would they stay open?" And she didn't want to tell me about you know how people would look the other way. Um, uh, the cops would look the other way because everybody kind of wanted it anyway. And, and so she just didn't tell me. And, and as a result, I, I have now a lifelong love affair with, with um, criminal empires. How do they work? I'm just endlessly fascinated by it, not just Prohibition or Chicago, but, you know, things like uh, El Chapo and, uh, you know, the various, uh, the various cartel operations um, uh, in Mexico, which I've also studied. So I, anyways, so this game, um, it, 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 I guess, I didn't, it was, okay, I love this time period, but how do you bring that, how does that become a game? And so when, when a game developer, well, at least when I'm fascinated with the time period, I am trying on various things. Like, could this work as a shooter? Could this work as a, but ultimately it came down to deciding, you know, what different mechanics it would be. Like, wouldn't it be, you know, instead of picking Gandhi and Civ, what if you picked Al Capone? And, you know, what if you were, pulling your crew from, you know, 60 different characters, like in Jagged Alliance. And what if the combat was turn-based, like, like an XCOM, you know? And, and so just, just from that, from that idea, the game director really now, now the next step is you write up a pitch. 
Um, and so we did, we wrote up a pitch and we talked to a bunch of different companies. Um, but Paradox is, you know, Paradox, I think of any, of any publisher, you know, Paradox knows its players the best. And I mean, they know strategy. And so we were thrilled to go with Paradox for the game. Um, they've been great to work with. Uh, and the game director, there's there's a million different things that are happening with a game, especially a game like this, which, you know, there really isn't another game like it. So a game director has to try to keep all that in their head and make sure, you know, when like um, they're, uh, like our combat designer, Ian O'Neill, you know, he's 100% immersed in combat, but it's his combat stuff driving with, say, some of Chris King's economic layer, strategy layer of the game. How are those two working together? Are they working together well? Are there... Um, uh, uh, and just making sure really like that there's one person who's responsible for, for making sure that the vision of the whole thing is holding together. Um, let's touch on paradox there then. Um, I, cause I, I was surprised, semi-surprised that when, when you did sign the pub- publishing agreement with paradox, because obviously Romero games has the ability to publish his own games and has done so in the past. Um, so uh, again, kind of putting this in full-blown five games off context. How, is, how have publisher relationships evolved and the role of publishers evolved since 1981, since like the early Wizardry games? Like what, how has the place of a publisher changed in the industry? Huh. Well, the early Wizardry games, Robert Woodhead and Andrew Greenberg developed the first four. Um, Surtec was the publisher, but Woodhead was a, part owner of Surtec as well. So, um, you know, a, a lot of times people would, the, the publishers would put ads in magazines, like Surtec had one, which authors wanted, you know, and they, you would, you would approach them with your game and that they would box the game and send it out. They had all the, you know, they had all the necessary manufacturing, um, uh, what am I trying to say? Facilities, um, all the publisher contacts, all the uh, sorry, the, the store contacts, distributor contacts, contacts with the press, and they would handle a lot of marketing stuff. And that's that's honestly not a whole heck of a lot different now, except our storefronts are digital, and uh, there still are physical releases, of course. If for some games, there's collectors releases, but um, there's there are uh, for consoles and, and Switch, there are still physical releases. So the role of the publisher in many cases, is still about funding. Um, and, and was even during that time, you know, if a game, unless a game comes to you already fully formed, already done, there's nothing more to do. But publishers have, you know, expertise, both in terms of what they expect their, what their player base, they, they have expertise about their player base, what their player base expects. And then um, uh, just everything from marketing to you are to, contacts with you know with with streamers and influencers and the press um all the machinery that is around the the selling of a game um in the full production of a game uh you know there's there's a really um there's a to me i guess being a developer there's a clear line in the sand between the expertise a publisher has and the expertise that a developer has some developers do have can publish their own games um, you know, and, and Romero Games has published its own games, but, you know, Empire of Sin was was big and it was ambitious. And, you know, we needed a publisher involved to, to get that thing developed and across the line. Okay, nice. Um, shameful confession slash apology at this point. I haven't played Empire of Sin yet. 
Um, but now that it's on Game Pass, I'm kind of it, it's downloaded and ready to go. I just haven't I haven't got around to it. I'm afraid, but I have been reading up on it. It's been um, really interesting because there's a there's a lot of different systems at work. As much as it, you could be oversimplifying by just calling it a strategy game, but there's multiple. As you kind of touched on earlier, like there's different layers. There's the economics. There's the the turn based combat. Um, I'm intrigued and kind of bring this full circle. The possibilities for role playing, both in this game and then generally, like how the possibilities for designing role-playing games have changed since you were working on those first Wizardry titles. Oh, geez. Um, well, I mean, Empire of Sin is, uh, Empire of Sin is just, it, it is a system soup, I think is the best term for it. You know, it, it has elements of empire building, role-playing. Um, it's a turn-based strategy game. It's also, uh, you know, an economic and, and uh, territorial uh, acquisition strategy game. Uh, it's it is many different things, which which was you know part of the the complexity of of developing it, and you could even see like in the release of the game. I, I think it's also you know part of its its reception, right? Like on the one hand, it received several nineties, and then it also got like a forty six, like, like like stratified reviews, um, and it was you know a case of uh, a lot of things, but depending on how you looked at the game. Um, did it match the expectations that you had? And, and if, you know, if you came in looking for, you know, a turn-based strategy game, a turn-based combat strategy game with role-playing elements, great, you know, that, but there were some things, especially on launch, and this goes, you know, to the internet. And when I talk about being grateful, um, with, with Empire of Sin, there was an exploit that effectively allowed you to do what we called the safe house strike. And you could, if you were expeditious about it, you could, you could win the game like in an hour and a half, which quite obviously was not any, but nobody would have put that much time and effort into a game that would be over in an hour and a half. Um, and so, you know, fortunately we were able to get out, you know, a, a fix for that really quick. Um, uh, in, in you know that's that's one of the great benefits. Like if 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 something that you didn't see goes wrong, like I remember it was one of the Might and Magic games. I think that you could just basically clip through a wall and win the game in minutes. Like how do you fix that when it's on five and a quarters or three and a half inch discs? You just send out a new one. You know, like patch discs. I guess like id Software actually sent out a patch disc at one point in time for. Um, we have a couple of them here, but uh, with that, <laughs> where is it going with this point? Um, Empire Sin is it. It is a whole lot of things. It is uh, it is a complex design overall, and we you know since its release, we've put out several hot fixes and two big updates that addressed a lot of the things that the players found. And so, you know, it's it's it is it's it's becoming more the game that that all the people want as opposed to like, it's great for these people, but these people aren't happy with it. Um, and that is another, you know, that's another tremendous benefit. When I look about, look at this game, it, I think about if we can compare 1981 where here are the reviews and there's just really nothing you can do about it. Right. You just, <laughs> you, 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 you know, you sort of hang your head and you, you walk away. Whereas uh, walk away or, you know, like, okay, well, here comes the next game. With this, if if you find something, like, if, if there's exploits in your game, like, here comes a patch. If if there are, like, you know what? Everybody wants auto-resolve. Let's get auto-resolve into the game as our, as our first 
you know, is our first big combat update. Here comes auto resolve. And, and then you have the ability also to like release that on a, you can have like a live development beta branch so people can play stuff early and, and things can get, you know, think if they're like, no, 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 please don't do this. Um, you can have like, we have a, a crew of people called the family and they, they test stuff out even before it goes out to that beta branch and, you know, give us feedback on that. And they're, they're a, you know, a, a vocal and critical group of, of players that we have curated for precisely that reason. Um, and I imagine like, you know, in 1981, I, I just wouldn't have had this ability. So, you know, I mean, how, I, I, you know, it's just, I think any game developer who's sort of had, um, who any game developer who's who's had the reception to their game be something other than what they intended is is grateful for the ability to say like okay this we can fix this we can you know we can improve the game going forward it also allows games instead of being you know this sort of um, fire and finish model games have much longer tails to them um, and if you take a look at something like you know Crusader Kings two you can see like there's so many so many DLCs to that game. Um, and, and now, you know, I, how many times have you finished a book and just wished you had one more chapter? Uh, and so we are in a situation now because of digital distribution where we are able to do that. And, you know, we're able to expand, um, you know, keep the universes that people like playing in, you know, and just keep them going longer. Wonderful. Uh, Brenda, thank you so much for your time today. We've <laughs> covered a lot of ground there, but uh, I'm very, very conscious that of, of just how much time we've taken up. So thank you so much for, uh, for your time. Well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was, that was, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's having 39 years. It's always um, like, what do you cover? What do you not cover? What do you talk about? I and mean, that's a, that's a whole lot of time. You know, what, what's changed? Everything has changed. Um, I think the only thing that hasn't changed like, is my first name. Like that, that stayed the same. Um, my eye color, maybe, but everything else has changed. You can listen to previous episodes of The Five Games Of and our other spin-off, The Game Developers Playlist, plus the weekly news show on your podcasting platform of choice. And you can find more news, insight, and analysis into the world behind video games at gamesindustry.biz.